0: Kia ora and welcome to my daily podcast on the kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey. I look at housing, unaffordability, climate change, inaction and child poverty reduction in Aotearoa and therefore when the National Party releases its policy for the election on October the 14th and it's quite possible they could be in government with ACT uh, by October the 15th, it's worth having a look at that policy. There's also been plenty of drama already on this policy and listeners to this podcast will recognise we've been looking at this over the last week or so, in particular after Christopher Luxon, the national leader, came out and said that the so-called MDRS, Medium Density Residential Standards, the bipartisan deal done in 2021 by, in particular, Nicola Willis and Megan Woods. Uh, was wrong, and it's uh, something that we suspected National would do. In fact, uh, an early indication from Christopher Luxon on his very first day in office was that he would have a look at it. But at various points he has supported it, in fact voted it, through just a few weeks after his uh, move to the top of National. And this is something that both Nicola Willis and Chris Bishop have put plenty of their own personal political capital behind. The idea, of course, is that if you allow people to build three three three-storey townhouses on a regular suburban section without a resource consent, you raise the potential for a supply shock that helps make housing for both buyers and renters more affordable. So you can see where um, the, uh, the thinking has come from. Uh, certainly the supply-side economics, which you could argue you know, a libertarian, conservative uh, uh, government would be interested in doing. And certainly it was consistent and also politically risky, as National has discovered. Because there's a whole bunch of people in the inner-city leafy suburbs in Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch, particularly Christchurch in Auckland, who have said... Uh, no, we don't want all these um, houses stealing our daylight next to us. Um, We want you to stop this. And there's been an awful lot of grief internally within the National Party as traditional National Party supporters have said, hey, um, I don't want all these people living next to me. Um, They need to live somewhere else, preferably somewhere a long way away. And, of course, there's plenty of um, supporters of National who like Greenfield's developments. These are... Standalone, brand new suburbs on the edge of town, connected by a motorway, brand new schools, brand new shopping centres, the whole caboodle. The background here, of course, is that they're quite expensive from an infrastructure point of view. And councils have been reluctant to grant approval for them. And also the central government, particularly NZTA, which um, funds at least half of these big infrastructure developments through building motorways and main highways. And then, of course, you've got health and education, who also have to build hospitals and schools whenever you look at building a new suburb. So um, the uh, thinking, particularly in councils and government, has been to try to avoid lots of greenfield developments because they're not as efficient in terms of infrastructure. For a start, you have to build brand new infrastructure. And just as when you look at a picture of a circle and you look how far and how big and wide the coverage for something on the edge of something is compared to something that's close to the center, you can see why there's a reluctance to go down the greenfields path aside from the issues around the climate. Because, of course, all that driving back and forth across town for work and school and all sorts of things is going to generate plenty of climate emissions. And um, also you have to build busways, railways, for all of these far-flung places. If you had people living uh, in closer proximity to each other in medium-density housing, sort of three-, four-storey walk-up, Um, that's on the main roads close to the centres of town, then um, a lot of the infrastructure already in place, be it roads, be it pipes, be it um, power lines, are essentially just used more extensively and more efficiently. And also, rather than having to replace, as you often do, this infrastructure um, with exactly the same, you actually use the replacement moment as a chance to intensify that particular area so in effect um, you're just putting a bigger cable into the same hole or you are um, putting better roads and railways into the same places you're not having to buy new land you're not having to often dig new holes and so this has been the um the thinking for probably a good 10 to 20 years in central government and local government planning circles that greenfield's bad um Brownfields good. The trouble is the people who live close to Brownfields they prefer greenfields. Uh, although um, they also don't want to pay for the infrastructure for that greenfields. Now you may say, hey, oh well, um, people who buy a house on the edge of town already pay. They pay a big development contribution. And for a long time they've been, you know, in the range of five, ten, twenty, maybe fifty thousand dollars. And that didn't seem like much, but of course, that didn't pay the whole cost. And when you look at the actual cost per dwelling of these big greenfields developments, they're getting up towards $150,000, $200,000. And what that does is just add, lump on that cost onto the cost of a house. So let's say you buy a section for half a million, you spend 600000 building a house, and then you have to pay another 200000 in development contributions. You know, you're looking at, at, um, you know, uh, more than a million dollars easily before you even build, before you even move into the house. And so what happens when you change the price at the margin for a new house is in effect that rolls back right across the existing housing stock. So when you increase the cost of a new marginal home, you in effect increase the cost and the value of all existing homes. So, just quietly, there's plenty of incentives for existing homeowners to prevent new homes and new land for new homes being made available, and you can do that in various ways. you can protest against it during the using the resource management act. That's part of the reason for the m d r s to try to pull the whole townhouse development process out of the r m a and you can also use your power as a voter, you can tell your uh, councillors and mayors that you don't want to pay higher rates to um, subsidise people building new homes on each of town, which you'll never use. And so we've had this um, horrible situation where we've had very high population growth, but not nearly enough new land or even old land made available for building new homes. It's a sort of Gordian knot which we're tied ourselves up into, which makes sense if your population doesn't change. And largely for the last 30 years, we have assumed in our planning decisions and our funding decisions that our population is not going to change that much. Because when we were looking at it in the 80s and 90s, that was true. But of course, since 2002 or so, for 20 years, we've had population growth running at 1.5 to 2% when we had planned for 0.5% or less. And in fact, um, since the late 80s, with the fashion for reducing the size of government and trying to run low public debt, we have underinvested in infrastructure to the tune of $100 billion, according to the Infrastructure Commission. And that's just the start of it, $100 billion for past underinvestment, and the Infrastructure Commission says to build our way through the sort of population growth That is currently expected. And remember, the current expectations are for about 0.5% population growth per annum. That there'd have to be another $100 billion spent within the next 30 years or so. So the task here for infrastructure investment by the public sector, both central and local government, is about $200 billion. So that's where you start. So National comes out with its policy. This is aimed at producing a lot more affordable housing, new housing supply, and also dealing with this blowback politically from the leafy inner suburbs full of National Party supporters. So Christopher Luxon said MDRS was wrong and flicked past it along the line to Chris Bishop, the housing spokesman, to essentially do the backflip in public. And so yesterday we saw Christopher Bishop, Chris Bishop, uh, do an interview with Jack Tame. And it's an excellent interview on the TVNZ Q&A program. Jack asks some very uh, tough but fair questions, and Chris Bishop gives a very good account of himself. If you're looking at a politician having to swallow a big, hairy, fat rat in public, uh, this is one of the more cleverly and elegantly and authentically executed rat-swallowing exercises I've seen in some time. So I wanted to play you a chunk from that interview, which is very good, which helps, explains the issues. And you can also hear for yourself um, what the rat swallowing sounds like in public.
1: National supported the MDRS. You supported the MDRS. You voted for it in Parliament. When you were sitting here last month, you said you weren't backing away from it. What's changed?
2: We've always said we were open to sensible changes. And actually what we've come up with, I think, is a far more ambitious package, it says to councils you can choose how your cities grow you can either do greenfields or you can do density or you can do in reality a mixture of both and around those rapid transit corridors uh, you can do six stories or above actually we're doubling down on that and encouraging mixed use development around rapid transit corridors, busways and uh, city rail link stations in Auckland for example Uh, and so we expect councils to do more density in the cities but we're just allowing more flexibility and discretion for councils around what they do. So the medium density residential zoning standards under what we're announcing today uh, are still there. We're just saying to councils, you can either choose to use them in part, use them in whole or opt out. It's over to you as a community and as a council.
1: I just want to look at the events of the week as they played out. Christopher Luxon was speaking at a campaign event in Birkenhead on Wednesday and he said, I think we've got the MDRS wrong, foreshadowing your confirmation today. Were those comments
2: planned? Uh, well, he was asked a direct question from the audience uh, about whether or not we were sticking with the MDRS.
1: Was he planning to say something about it that day?
2: Well, no. I think he got asked a direct question from the audience, mm. and uh, you know, we've been working on our housing policy over the last two or three weeks. I think I said on your show a few weeks ago that we were getting close to an announcement. You also said point. we're not
1: backing away from it.
2: Well, that was the position at, at six weeks ago, and but it's uh, well, that's right. So,
1: so, did you have any notice that Christopher Luxon was going to say that this week?
2: No, because it was a public meeting. But that, but that's completely fine. I mean people that no because it was a public meeting you know he answered the question directly mm. and I think actually people appreciate his upfrontness and his honesty so, so uh, and ha- transparency in saying that so
1: for how long have you been planning to reverse your
2: position uh, we've been talking about our MDRS changes and our wider housing policy for the last couple of months uh, and as I said we've been internally when, to when, the did you, when
1: did you confirm it though?
2: when do we confirm the policy internally yeah Oh, Within a, the party a, in the last few days, but
1: so pol- after after he made that announcement, you didn't actually have a set position on this. No,
2: but, well, policy is iterative process, right? You work through. Uh, consultation, I've been out there talking to developers. Sounds like
1: it's an on-the-hoof process. Not at at all, policy
2: development by definition is a developmental process. You consult with stakeholders, you talk to developers, I've been talking to to people in the urban development community, I've been out there talking to economists, I've been reading the Infrastructure Commission reports. There's a lot of work's gone into this, a lot of academic research, a lot of uh, consultation with the people who know what they're talking about to try and come up with a very ambitious uh, package. Policy's not just something, I mean, it might be like that in the Labour Party, where uh, famously uh, David Shearer came up with 100,000 Kiwi-built homes in the uh, back of the Crown limo on the way to the conference. And, uh, that's so, not the way we do things in the National Well, government. I mean,
1: apparently apparently you, you're turning things around pretty quickly. Did, did you give the government any notice? No. Did you reach the bipartisan deal in good faith in 2021? Yes, we did. Well, wouldn't it have been a good faith move to give the Housing Minister at least a heads up that you're planning to reverse your support of the MDRS?
2: Well, we are taking our own policy to the election in the same way that the Labour Party will take their own policy well, to the but, election. But, but just it's point very out unusual
1: to, you. to have a bipartisan agreement. Yeah. So, so wouldn't yeah. well, it, well, if well, you reached it in good faith, wouldn't it be a good faith move to actually pull out and give them support? Well, well, well
2: two things on that. Since we reached that agreement, there have been two developments in the last two years that the Labour Party has not talked to us about. One was they gave Auckland Council a one-year extension. Mm. Uh, they wrote, I found out about that... Um, after I read it in the media, so I had no idea about that. Mm. And the other thing is they sent a crown observer into Christchurch, again, there was no consultation uh, with us in relation to that. And just mm. in the last few days, Megan Woods gave a speech, uh, a 20 minute speech uh, of which, 15 minutes of which, was basically attacking me uh, and Nicola Willis. So um, any degree mm. of bipartisanship from Megan Woods has certainly went out the window straight away. So. We have our own policy. The National Party has its own agenda for government. We're putting our own uh, policies on the table and if we are elected, we will consider ourselves to have a mandate to implement them and we will do so.
1: Was Christopher Luxon the leader when the
2: third reading for the MDRS bill came up? Uh, Yes, he was. That was in December 2021. I think it was a few days later. Did he understand
1: the implications of the law when he voted for it?
2: Absolutely, we talked about it extensively as a caucus uh, in October and November 2021 when it was going through. There was a lot of debate internally about it.
1: So so if he understood it, why has he reversed
2: his position? Because we said all the way through, um, that we would consider the way the law was being implemented, and mm. we would look at sensible changes. By the way, that's also the government position. Megan Woods is on the record saying that they would look uh, at sensible changes, uh, and so it's and that, that remains the to,
1: to remove the mandate. Though. I mean, it's, it's more than just a little tweak or a it's, refinement. It's it is, more, I mean, you were essentially, given councils were so opposed to it, you're essentially saying you're off
2: the hook. It's more flexibility and more discretion. But here's the critical point. They have to go for growth. Yes we're requiring them to put 30 years of housing demand in terms of supply into the market in the short term. Now they will have to meet that demand. Uh, yeah. Uh, by either doing greenfields or doing density or a mix, right. and if they don't do it, we will do it for them. Okay, so we're we'll going to talk legislate. about this in
1: just a moment. I've got okay. two more political You're questions, and then we're the done. Politics. Well, no, I think it is. It is very interesting. It's quite telling about how your policy development, if, if it's changed in the last couple of days, ACT was the only party that voted against the MDRS
2: when it came into law. Will this change in position win you more votes? Uh, well, it's about going for more housing supply. I think New Zealanders want to see mm. from the National Party that we are serious about solving housing in this country. Uh, we have a 30-year problem with housing affordability. Mm. They want to see from the National Party that we are serious about but it. So,
1: so you acknowledge, though, that it will lead to more sprawl if, yes, we, if we introduce it? it will, but it'll so, be worth it.
0: So there we have it, uh, Jack Tame and Chris Bishop uh, with a political tete-a-tete taking you through the ins and outs of uh, uh, what happened during National's policy progress and, um, you know, just making sure people know that Christopher Luxon voted for MDRS and that this clearly is a change of policy by National, although Chris Bishop, again, pushes back pretty strongly um, at this idea that this is a, a pure backflip. Okay, so what about the actual policy? That's why it's worth having listened to this exchange where we hear Jack ask about this issue of infrastructure funding, which is right at the core of the problem.
1: So, OK, let's talk about the infrastructure costs yep. if, if we are building on the, on the, around the fringes of our biggest cities. So in 2017, Auckland Council estimated the average infrastructure cost of Greenfield's developments was $146,000 mm-hmm. a house. Yep. What would it be now?
2: Probably a little bit more than that, but the, that's but the, an extraordinary sum. Yes, a house. But when you when you flood the market with abundant development opportunities, and we're setting in place a rule that says new Greenfields housing has to be funded by the beneficiaries of that housing. So in other words, the people who move into that. So housing you want to buy affordable to
1: housing? You're going to the edges of the city, yep. and you're going to maybe pay one hundred and eighty thousand. $200,000 just for the
2: infrastructure for the house, just for the pipes and the roads. That will be done as a targeted rate or a targeted levy. But that's hardly that. making it more affordable, is it? Well, no, it does because it gets imputed into the land price, which drives the land price down, which makes the housing more affordable. And so over 30 years, people who move into those properties will pay off a targeted rate. This is not this is relatively new, but it has mm. been done. So Milday, for example, in north of Auckland uh, has trialled this model. It's worked really well there. We want to make it a lot easier and cut the red tape to use this new tool called the Infrastructure Funding and Financing Vehicle uh, to be used Mm. in many more green fields around uh, the country. Toronto is using it right now. Wellington's looking at it, but there's a lot of red tape around it. We're going to make it a lot easier.
1: I want to ask um, you about climate change because in your policy document, you talk about uh, the climate liability. You say that it is worsened by uncertainty and delays in housing policy in New Zealand. So economists estimate New Zealand has a housing shortage of fifty to 100,000 houses.
2: It's far worse than that. Okay, how many would you say it is? Well, certainly more than 100,000. I mean, it's impo- impossible to put an time. exact just, number just, just, on it. Just but, for the sake of... But, it, yeah. but, I mean, it's ridiculous. You see sometimes people come out and say, oh, we'll end, up, we'll end our housing shortage soon. We'll end our housing shortage when people don't live in motels.
1: If 100,000 houses are built in greenfields versus 100,000 in townhouses under the MDRS including the transport and infrastructure impacts, what option of those would lead to the greatest emissions?
2: There's no doubt that um, density is the best for climate. Absolutely no doubt about that. People who live in inner-city Auckland, inner-city Wellington, uh, consume fewer carbon emissions Mm. than people on the fringes of our cities. But I tell you what's more important is housing affordability. Mm. That is absolutely imperative for New Zealand. So many of our problems are caused by that, and I'm prioritising that over essentially a utopia of everyone living inside our cities we need housing choice mm. and we need housing affordability do you want to see house prices come down further i want to see sustained moderation over time oh, as, a in, Robertson as incomes in rise
1: <laughs> what does that mean
2: well it means that over time we we've, we've got to get to a situation where the well, average what, house in Auckland is not 10 times average household income what should it be well in a if you if you if you look at the experts and you go to a place like texas or houston for example yep. Average household income to the, the median multiple, as mm. they call it, is four, three to three and a half to four to one. Right. How long is it going to take to get there? It'll take a while, but that's that's the extent of the problem. So, so basically,
1: gone. you don't want house prices to increase. For I mean. Potentially decades,
2: off the top of my head. I want sustained moderation in house prices, and I want income growth as well. Yeah. So that. But so if that we allow for inf- income growth
1: at say three or four percent a year, which is the sort of historic level, then then we are literally going to be waiting decades until we reach that
2: four to one ratio. Well, I don't think it will take that long, but we mm. we do we can't have a house price crash mm. that would be disastrous in terms of financial stability. But we have to put in place these policies so that New Zealanders see some hope. Right. That young Kiwis, people in their twenties and thirties sitting out there watching this program, possibly not because they're hungover, but, may, but maybe later on on demand. Uh, they, they definitely and, watch. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they see some hope. And what I'm saying to them today, and I, and I hope they hear me yeah. directly, I'm saying to them, National cares about you and your dreams and your aspirations, and we are here for you, and we will get in. So
0: there you heard it. Uh, sustained moderation is what you need, not falling house prices. And that's The correct level of affordability to go for is maybe three and a half times, four times income, but we can't get there very fast, says Chris Bishop. It's all very reminiscent, actually, of of Nick Smith, who was the housing minister back in 2014 or so, and he was also talking about three, four times, and sort of almost um, managed to get it into some sort of legislation when – and this all sounds very familiar – National was keen on creating special housing areas. You might remember those, shahs, special housing areas where effectively bits of land were forcibly rezoned by the government um, over the tops of councils. And what has often happened with those bits of land is that they haven't been developed because the councils um, decided or didn't have enough funding to pay for the infrastructure. It's always, always about infrastructure funding. And uh, this is the issue at play here. How does National uh, encourage, force, tempt, cajole, bully councils into, into paying for their half share of the infrastructure? And how does the government itself pay for the half share of the infrastructure? Now, for 30 years, uh, and certainly for the last 20 or so, both National and Labour governments have all assumed The baseline of the situation is it's not going to come from us and it's not going to come from councils because we don't want them taking on more debt because much more heavily indebted councils puts New Zealand's sovereign credit rating at risk, particularly when the government has set up a local government funding agency to do the borrowing for councils and has put a government guarantee behind that. So in effect, the councils cannot borrow without the permission of the central government and they can't effectively expand their balance sheets with lots more debt because when you do that you'll probably have a lower credit rating and for some of the big ones, in particular Auckland, the theory is if you have a fall in Auckland's credit rating that could put New Zealand's credit rating at risk and the moment you do that, interest rates, mortgage rates, um, all other things being equal, would go up. And that can never, never, never be tolerated um, by a government because when interest rates go up, asset prices go down. And we're talking here, of course, about house prices for most um, voters. And uh, with that baseline, what we've seen over the last 30 years is that both National and Labour have essentially assumed, just stated it outright, that the whole aim is to get the government down to around about 30% of GDP now that's in terms of the tax to GDP share it's currently around 31 32% but is heading towards 30% thanks thanks in part to various tax cuts over the years and because the government tries to run surpluses whenever it can and it does this often by having sinking lids on uh, government spending the government also tries to keep net debt uh, down around 20-30% of GDP. Now there has been some wriggle room there, if you like. Um, you can go outside that in the middle of a major disaster, global financial crisis, Christchurch earthquakes, <laughs> COVID. Uh, we seem to have a few of them lately and uh you can uh maybe you know zip up to thirty or forty percent if you absolutely need to, but then, as soon as you past the crisis, then you have to bear down on spending and get that debt down with quite a few years of surpluses and That's what we saw post two thousand and twelve to two thousand and seventeen with the previous national government zero operating allowances, that means no extra spending on government and starvation of capital investment. Um, And, of course, the government's other solution to get back into surplus was to have very fast population growth, whereby new people, workers pay lots of PAYE and GST. So you have a combination of starvation of infrastructure investment a starvation of public service spending operationally per year, combined with a much higher population, all putting that infrastructure under more pressure. And we're seeing the outcomes of that now, uh, the health system going into winter. It's awful. And you know, lots of other signs of this. And in particular, um, our emissions, not to mention our housing crisis. So um, how do you deal with this? Well, the government's approach over the last 20 or 30 years has been to try to get the public sector to pay, to try to get the private sector to pay for it. And that um, has taken all forms. So we've seen the idea of public-private partnerships. Interestingly, that wasn't mentioned in today's, uh, that wasn't mentioned in National's policy and also um, something called the Infrastructure Funding and Financing Act which eventually passed in 2020. This is a Treasury MBDIA special where the idea is you uh, um, you allow private interests or a council to set up a special debt vehicle, a um, special borrowing vehicle And uh, what you do is create a special targeted rate, which means everyone who owns some land in that particular zone pays a little bit extra on top of their rates, uh, or quite a lot extra on top of their rates, to service that particular debt attached to that bit of land. And that makes sense for really big projects. And it's been trialled in a place called Milldale, and you might have heard that from Chris Bishop there in that section, uh, trialled there. It particularly works for really big projects, and what it does is that it effectively smears the cost over a long period for those who are living in those homes. But also, it creates this targeted rate on top of the rate, so it's a bit like leasehold. You know there's an extra cost you have to pay, or it's a bit like a body corporate. And when you apply that uh, across many years, that depresses the value of the asset. That depresses the value of the land, and... Uh, That's good when you want to get into it, I suppose. Um, But the whole point of owning land is not to actually have a house to live on it. It's for the value of the land to go up and for it to be unencumbered. So try getting a a bank loan on a leasehold property, particularly an apartment, particularly the one that might have some issues. Uh, And effectively, targeted rates land is a type of leasehold. And um, that's complicated. And it makes people nervous, and it might actually poison the whole idea for those people who understand how you get ahead in New Zealand, which is to buy land, wait for interest rates to fall, wait for central and local governments to underinvest, wait for them to pull on the migration levers to get lots of people in, and that increases your rents uh, and increases your... Gains in the value of your land, and if you're able to borrow even better, you get leveraged gains. So, in effect, you get a much, much higher return over time than any other asset investment because it's leveraged and because it is so risk free in terms of the volatility of those prices. And um, that's where we are at the moment. Um, people know that's how you get ahead in New Zealand. So um, Chris Bishop has gone down this track again uh, by talking about lots of different ways in which the government and the councils don't have to pay, and that all the costs of this new infrastructure is effectively front-loaded and totally front-loaded onto the people who are buying at the fringes. So what this does is through development contributions, it pushes up the price of building a new home because you have to pay the extras, and we know that in Auckland, the full cost, if it was spread over as a development contribution, gets up towards $200,000 per house. and uh, Or you see the in- introduction of a targeted rate, which, uh, again, increases your annual costs and depresses the value of the land. The other option is to have... Um, those people who own land, that increases in value because a new motorway is going to it or it's a railway or, and or it's just been rezoned, that a big chunk of that value is captured by the government in the form of a special rate. So in effect, uh, the tax-free capital gains you get, you, they're not all yours when you get the, the rezoning pushing it up. You have to give some of it back to the government who then uses that money to pay for uh, the infrastructure to service that land. So, A, there's a bit of a balance sheet issue there. Um, if you buy land and then you have to hand over the um, unrealized capital gains. <laughs> so, nationalists proposing a capital gains tax on land bankers, uh, on unrealized gains on land. Um, or maybe they just wait until it's sold, so the government has to take out a loan (laughs) to pay for the infrastructure and then get some money back from the developers once the whole thing's developed so why not just borrow the money and just keep borrowing the money and servicing it at much lower interest rates uh yes this is the problem here so you can see there's a whole bunch of land bankers are going to go look at that and go hey uh that's not what we do land banking for we do land banking for higher land values because of some change in zoning rule or because someone else the taxpayer or the ratepayer, that you've just built an asset that makes the land valuable. That's the deal. Um, why, else am I, why, why else have I got all these good contacts with people in council and government if I'm not going to get my land rezoned in the way I want, and also to stop other people from getting land re- rezoned? I want control over that land. I don't necessarily want to build on it. I want to drip feed the land out. Um, certainly not sell it in some sort of downturn and certainly not dump it on the market. So you're going to have some pretty powerful land bankers pushing back the idea of value capture and it's the reason why not even labour has managed to get that going. So um, let's look at these various options. Uh, Infrastructure funding and financing, we've actually only ever had one of those deals despite this being in the works for nearly six years and it's done through the Tauranga City Council Uh, just over $100 million or so. And the main reason that was done is because the government controls the Tauranga City Council. They put commissioners in. And uh, so it's just not working. And the reason it's not working is because when you do lots of little infrastructure spending bits and pieces, often they're in different places from where you're building the development. And they don't really work for brownfields. And so they just don't work. Just remember, though, the big picture here is that for most of the people who are, you know, arguing for these things, owning this land in their 50s, 60s, 70s, they grew up in homes in which the government of the 40s, 50s and 60s 60s, effectively wore the cost through the Ministry of Works and the Electricity Department of building all this infrastructure and then literally handing it over to uh, developers and people who are buying new homes so that the front-loading of the underlying costs was not lumped totally onto the cost of the home at the margin. Um, This is what the Ministry of Works was for, and the government often helped finance a lot of um, the uh, property development and set the standards for what types of houses that um, could be provided and often provided guarantees to the builders to Buy them back, so we have a situation now where, unlike in the forties, fifties, and sixties, seventies, you saw the government take the cost of the public uh, public infrastructure and effectively smear it across all taxpayers over a long period, and now we have had since the later nineteen eighties this theory that any new infrastructure has to be paid by those people who are actually going to use it, user pays at the margin, so the new people. So old people don't pay for infrastructure post-80s, 90s, 2000s. That's young people who pay for it. Surprise, surprise, (laughs) the cost of new housing, and therefore the cost of all housing, has risen sharply. And the National Party's proposals here are really just tweaks on the existing system. None of them. Not Labour either that we can see, and certainly not from the budget forecasts, are willing to challenge the fundamental underpinning of this housing market, infrastructure, climate, poverty issue, which is that the parties of the centre-right and centre-left have committed themselves for 30 years to keeping public debt low so that interest rates, mortgage rates can be kept low so that asset prices go high and that keeping tax off capital gains allows people who buy their own home to make leveraged and tax-free capital gains that are enormous relative to the returns on other types of investment. We built an economy based on it. And so if you do something to threaten it, let's say you have a um, huge amount of infrastructure spending which is designed to create a supply shock, um, to do that uh, you're going to have to change those fundamental settings. So that includes taxing, the wealth or the capital gain or the land in some form to change all those incentives and also to provide a revenue stream to fund the borrowing and the infrastructure spending for the sort of population growth that you want. You also have to agree and debate publicly what is the population growth you want. Extraordinarily, in yesterday's announcement from uh, National, there was no mention of population growth or any sort of uh, expectations of population growth. There were plenty of of uh, comments about uh, making sure that councils provided enough um, uh, serviced uh, residential zoned land for thirty years of growth. But we didn't. We don't know what that thirty years of growth actually means. Is it the current Stats NZ projections for population growth of zero point five percent per annum, or is it the actual population growth we've had for the last twenty years of one and a half to two percent per annum? And what we have at the moment, right now, of about 2.5% per annum. So we still don't, uh, uh, we're still not having the debate about population growth and how we're going to fund it. And also, we're still not challenging the fundamental underpinnings of this explosion in asset values that has wiped out the dreams of a generation and sentenced that generation and one before it to poverty. And to give you an idea, we got some fresh numbers today from the Ministry of Social Development and the IRD showing that there are 600,000 New Zealanders who are now in debt to the Ministry of Social Development and the IRD to the tune of $2.4 billion, including for the first time a billion dollars owed by Maori people, uh, who by the way on average um, uh, own Or owe forty percent, forty-two percent of the debt, even though the population is fourteen percent. Over seventy percent, nearly three quarters of the debt is owed by women, and uh, we have a situation where um, the average debt for Maori is seven thousand dollars in Fakie, and for the overall population, five thousand dollars. And this has to be repaid at a rate of about $17 a week, um, which is actually more than the winter energy payment. And um, people wonder why um, anyone who's in a position to leave the country with skills does it. Uh, Now, Chris Bishop thinks that this will give some people hope, but even he acknowledges that um, without significant falls in asset values fast and a significant amount of house building, Uh, you do not see progress towards something like three and a half to four times income until, well, decades. So um, this is a basic problem. Now you ask, well, there's a lot of nitpicking and (laughs) complaints you've got going on there, Bernard, for this genuine attempt to solve the problem. And I, I certainly don't question the genuineness of the policies. But there is a lot of assumptions here about, Uh, whether we can do something um, with the existing rules. They say that um, if you want to get a different result, you should try some different things. What's actually happening here is the same things being done, just tweaked a bit here and there, um, and not much changes. So my overall um, view here is that this is a well-meaning attempt to solve the problem, which which won't solve the problem because it relies on methods and private funding which has failed repeatedly for 30 years and also doesn't address the issue of how fast our population should grow and how much planning we should do for it. In my view, and I've got a bit of a proposal I've included in the email today, and I might actually break it out into a separate story as well because it's quite (laughs) long. at least I've got there. My proposal is for a broad-based low-rate tax on the value of residential zoned land so that's not farms it's not iwi but it is owner occupied land per year I'd say about 0.5% for occupied residential land and maybe 1% for unoccupied residential land so that land bankers who currently are able to drip feed land out and keep prices high are in effect incentivized to put their land onto the market faster. And uh, this would raise about $5 billion a year, because remember the value of our residential lands is just over $1 trillion. And you could use $5 billion a year to service the debt on about $100 billion in debt. Now no one's suggesting you'd go out and <laughs> borrow $100 billion now, but the New Zealand government could certainly borrow um, a couple of hundred billion over the next 30 years in total, and do it at long term. So 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. I'm not suggesting 100 years, which is what Mexico and Austria have done in recent years, but certainly 20, 30-year bonds. And there aren't that many around there, actually. And there is an enormous demand for them right around the world and from our own pension funds. And it can be done very cheaply. But what it does do is break the rule, if you like. Uh, it adds $5 billion, which um, is around about 1% or 2% of GDP, depending on which decade you're in. And that so that goes from 30% of GDP, uh, the tax to GDP ratio. Remember 30% the sort of 30-30 rule. And it would raise net debt, um, depending on how quickly you did it, uh, from uh, around about... 20 percent of GDP to maybe 35 40 percent of GDP depending on which decade you're in so that would break the rule too so what I'm saying is we need to break our fiscal rules that we've agreed but not debated between center left and center right for three decades because it's failed we have housing and climate crises we have a poverty crisis it's failed why are you carrying on doing the same thing or just a bit more of it it's not going to work Anyway, so what I'd suggest, raise $5 billion a year from a residential uh, land tax, you could call it a climate and housing levy if you like, Um, specify that uh, a combination of um, a new Ministry of Works with the Climate Commission, the Infrastructure Commission, NZTA, Waka Kotahi, essentially plan and use these funds to deliver an improvement in housing affordability over a certain time, and to deliver on the actual targets that were really legislated for zero emissions. I would say we need to go for zero emissions from housing and transport by 2050 and aim to get the cost of housing down towards three and a half to four times income, as specified by Chris Bishop and Nick Smith over the years, and ensure that no one is paying more than 30% of disposable income in rent. That's affordable. If we can do it with lots of nice, warm, dry homes close to where we live, work and play and learn, then um, we have a good shot at solving some of our bigger problems. Um, but it means breaking the rules. And it also means effectively taking these day-by-day decisions out of the hands of politicians. We do not want Jerry Brownlee or Michael Wood making decisions about whether or not we have a motorway or a railway based on what the polls said two weeks ago. That doesn't work. We decided it didn't work for the Reserve Bank and interest rates. Why do we think it'll work for our housing and transport policies? So I think we've clearly got a crisis, a lot like the crisis faced by New Zealand's voters and politicians in the 70s and 80s, which was we were a protected, not very diverse, poor-performing economy with... um, uh, arguably too much infrastructure and low population growth. And we also um, had a problem with inflation. So we decided collectively that we would solve this problem by setting a target and giving the job to an appointed official and we would let them get on with it. If they failed, we would sack them. That's how it works. So why not combine those um, bodies, Ministry of Um works, NZTA, Waka Kotahi, Climate Commission, and uh, the Infrastructure Commission into a body which is responsible, which would have a CEO and a board and all of those things, and a target, just like a 2% inflation target. But these targets would be zero emissions from housing and transport by 2050, and affordable housing, three and a half, four times income, and no more than 30% of disposable income by 2050. And everyone pays the levy. Now, if you can't pay the levy this year because you're a nana, you live on a massive piece of land in Rumura and you don't have the cash, fair enough. Um, you just um, not pay and, and the, the debt, if you like, just builds up quietly in the background at an extremely low interest rate or no interest rate. And then when um, nana passes on, um, then the when the uh, uh, land is sold or the kids want to take it over, um, they need to pay it. It effectively becomes an inheritance tax, or if you're feeling really grumpy about it, a death tax. Um, uh, So in one fell swoop, you would create, in effect, a way to tax unearned wealth fairly and simply and without debate. And it would be right across the population and it would be used to build the infrastructure that we need to um, keep the planet alive and also cope with population growth. Because my view is that we need a big New Zealand. In many ways, we don't have a choice. We live in a a hemisphere, the Asia-Pacific hemisphere, where more than 2 billion people by 2100 will be living in areas, well, they currently live in areas, that will be uninhabitable, that will be too hot, that will be 3 to 4 degrees warmer than industrial areas, and we know from the science that that will be too hot. And not everyone will be able to move. Some will go north, some will go east and west and north, but a lot of those places will have big walls up uh, or aren't much fun to be in, Siberia, for example. And so uh, Australia and New Zealand is actually the only places in this hemisphere that will be reasonably comfortable to live in in a a much warmer world. And of that 2 billion, there's probably about 100 million in that zone who would love to move to Australia and New Zealand. Not all of Australia, not the top and the middle, just the sides and the bottom. And in New Zealand, um, pretty much most of where we are, well, I suspect Northland might not be a lot of fun. And um, uh, so that's 100 million who want to come here by 2100. Now, we know that we've had population growth of about 1.5% for the last 20 years and it seems impossible for it to stop Um, Labour tried and they could do it during a pandemic when the borders were closed but um, when the pressure came on they they relented that's why we we're headed for 100,000 net migration in 2023 that is at least 2% more like 2.5% population growth per year so we should if we're going to do this if we're going to do the thing like we did in 1989, which is when we passed the Reserve Bank Act and decided in a cross-party way that we had a existential crisis that needed to be solved by setting a target and giving the tasks to a central banker to fix. And that's what the Reserve Bank Act is and that's what the achievement on low inflation is and was. Uh, why don't we do it for housing and climate as well and ensure that um, an appointed Official who we can sack uh, has responsibility for achieving that and we take these decisions out of the hands of politicians because otherwise we face a future uh, where currently 600,000 people are in debt to the state to the tune of $4,000 each. We're in a position where over 400,000 New Zealanders do not make enough money day in, day out to pay for their rent, all their food where demand for food banks has tripled in the last three years where we have 24,000 people on a waiting list and 3,000 kids living in motels with an average of staying there for six months. That's not sustainable. More than 30,000 young New Zealand residents left New Zealand in the last year to go and move to Australia where now of course they can be first-class citizens this isn't going to last Somewhat, something's going to break so um, uh, I'm suggesting um, changing the uh, underlying settings for all of this and challenging um, yet more of the same which is what I think has been proposed here from National and, and I don't see much different from Labour I'm Bernard Hickey that was rather long <laughs> and detailed podcast I hope you found it useful and I'd like to pass on my thanks to um, the Q&A team and Jack Tame and Chris Bishop um, for in- letting me include that uh, clip in the podcast. Kaki